0: We're going to read from Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 7. Isaiah 49, verse 1 to 7. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me from my mother's womb. He has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been strength, my strength, he says. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles." That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says. The Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. To him who was despised and abhorred by the nation. To the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Amen. Amen. Uh, You'll help me
1: and uh, help yourself if you leave the Bible open there at Isaiah 49 as we work through this uh, next in our servant songs. Uh, Ambition, strong ambition can have a clouding effect on our thinking. Uh, Those of us who are ambitious in whatever field, it can distort the way we see the scales uh, or our body in the mirror at the gym, uh, the way we look in those pants, or the way we count the number of people at our church on Sundays. Ambition can uh, cloud our thinking, and particularly, I think it can cloud our thinking not only about ourselves and our churches, but about the people in whom we're invested, about the people uh, who we love, and particularly, ambition can cloud the view of parents about their children. Now, at one level, I'm not particularly worried about that. i myself am the f- father of four kids, and I kind of feel like it's my job to be uh, kind of biased toward overly um, you know, into my kids and to love them and make them feel special and to kind of back them and always be on their side in the sport. And all that's the thing. That, that's kind of what dads do. That's why I get paid the big bucks. That's what I'm there for. But when it comes to parental ambition... No one in this room, I bet, comes even close to Earl Woods. Uh, Earl Woods is the father of the former great golfer, Tiger Woods, and famously, if you've come across this before, at an after-dinner speech uh, in which he was introducing his son, Earl Woods, father of Tiger Woods, says this, and I quote, see if you can spot the bit where he jumps the shark. He says, please forgive me, but sometimes I get very emotional when I talk about my son. My heart fills with so much joy when I realise that this young man is going to be able to help so many people. So far, so good. He will transcend this game and bring to the world a humanitarianism which has never been known before. (laughs) He, Tiger Woods, will make this world a better place to live in by virtue of his existence And his presence. This is an actual quote. I acknowledge only a small part in that. I know that I was personally selected by God himself. To nurture this young man and to bring him to a point where he can make his contribution to humanity. This is my treasure. Please accept it and use it wisely. Thank you. And I mention Earl Woods and his extraordinary ambition for his son uh, because this servant song is about God's extraordinary ambition for his servant. Have a look at it with me, you can follow along in the notes and in the passage. If you can see Isaiah chapter 49 uh, verses 1 to 7, Peter helped us so well yesterday to understand the kind of context of Isaiah, that beautiful picture of the, the way that, the way it works, like music with the, the bass and the melody and so on. So we've got the context, we're going to jump in here at, at Isaiah 49, this next of the servant songs. And I think you can break open the passage by asking who's speaking, uh, who's he speaking to and what's he speaking about. Uh, so who is... Speaking, it begins, listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord Lord called me, from my birth, he made mention of my name. Isaiah 49, verse 1, there's there's an I speaking. Someone's doing this, it's in the first person, and it's not the Lord. Often Isaiah, it is the Lord. God is speaking in first person, quoted by Isaiah. But here, it's not the Lord, because in verse 1, you notice, the Lord called me. It's not the Lord, it's someone talking about their relationship to the Lord, and it's not, I think, Isaiah, that the identity of the speaker is mysterious, but the point I want to make is it's not mysterious to us, because we don't know Hebrew very well, or we don't understand the context, it's mysterious on purpose, that is, the way the writer has written this passage is to be mysterious about the identity of the servant, that make sense? So you look at the way he's... Written that with the, with the, the imagery, verse two, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. He concealed me in his quiver. Now remember, um, you know, uh, the English tradition of poetry is about rhyme and meter and and uh, and that that sort of pattern. Hebrew poetry, all about the parallel. So in Hebrew poetry, you admire the poet, not that can make things rhyme, but the poet that can make really excellent parallels of one idea to another. And here you see he's got a parallel one, three, two, four, like that. So follow along or look along with me. He says, "He the coordinate ideas, he makes my mouth like a sharpened sword. He made me like a polished arrow. So yeah, those two ideas coordinate. The picture is of potency, because swords and arrows are potent, and they're, they're weapons, they're, they're, they're objects of warfare, but they're not, they're not weapons of mass destruction. A sword and, a, and an arrow which is polished and sharp, they're precision instruments. So the idea here is, is of someone that can, that can do their work, not just well, but very precisely precisely that they're, they're exactly right, they're exactly shaped like with a scalpel of a surgeon to, to do the precision cut, like uh, Peter's uh, image yesterday of the, of the key that exactly fits. That's the idea here, sharpened, polished, exactly right for precision cuts. So I think the, the, uh, the closest we have in our language is, would be to say a silver bullet uh, because a silver bullet has that idea of being just exactly right, the, the exact thing. That you should have. And it worked, the silver bullet thing works as well with the concealment because you've got here sharp and polished. And then the other coordinate ideas in, in the poetry, the parallel, is in the shadow of his hand, he hid me, he concealed me in his quiver. You see that the on-purpose concealment, the, the hiddenness. And again, that's a, a silver bullet type idea because the idea of a silver bullet is that it's precise, but also that it was kind of a secret weapon. But no one knew you had the silver bullet, and there it was, and it actually did the job for you. And what the servant is saying about the servant is that he's that. Concealed, hidden, didn't know you had it, but when it's revealed, it's exactly right. It's the precision instrument for the job. Verse 3, he says, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. And here, you see, the, the, the servant is revealed as Israel. That's the name of the servant. But what I'm trying to say to you is that the servant is on purpose concealed. And again, as Peter helped us to see yesterday, uh, Israel, as a name for the servant, raises as many questions as it answers. I am Israel, God says, you are my servant Israel In whom I will display my splendour, and that that fits with Israel. If you're thinking of the word Israel referring to the nation, because the vocation of Israel was, it's fair summary, to display the splendour of God. So God chooses Abraham, and God says, through Abraham and your descendants, you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Israel is rescued from Egypt, and they're taken en route to the promised land at Sinai. God says, I carried you on eagle's wings, Exodus twenty uh, that you would be for me a treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a holy na- a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. now priests need clients priests aren 't priests to themselves right a, a priest a priest needs a client so if you 've got a whole nation of priests what 's the market value of that if you 're all priests you think hey, where my, how do I move my product uh, <laughs> But, but the point of Israel is that they are to be a kingdom of priests. That is, the whole nation, Israel as a whole, is to be the one that mediates the salvation and blessing of God to, to the nations. That's Israel's vocation. That's their job. They're to display God's splendor in the world. So that makes sense. Israel, the, uh, the, the, the servant of the God, also makes sense, by the way, notice that the servant's talking to the islands. So the servant says, hear me, you distant island. He he wants the the word to go out. Why? Because that's how Israel rolls. That's the whole point, that we're supposed to mediate the the knowledge of God, the blessings of God to the nations. So, of course, the servant, Israel, addresses the nations. But then there's a problem. Verse 4. Israel, the servant, says, but I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. There's an allusion here to some sort of some sort of problem in the mission. It doesn't. I don't think that reads like a confession. Do you? I don't think they're saying, "Oh, I've messed up," but but somehow there is some some roadblock. Something has happened where where, where the, the the servant finds themselves asking the question that Paul anticipates about Christian ministry in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, Paul, almost the same language there, but Paul says, your, your labour in the Lord is not in vain. And, and here, the, the servant says, it feels like I've laboured in vain, that I've spent my strength for nothing. Now, the context of Isaiah here is helpful. Remember Isaiah, big book, 66 chapters, chapters 1 to 39, all judgment. Because chapters 1 to 39 are about exile, about Israel about to go into exile for having broken the terms of the covenant. And the whole point of Isaiah chapter 1 to 39 is to frame the narrative so that when Israel ends up in exile, the only thing they can say is, this is our fault. Because that, that's the whole point of the 8th kind of century prophets and of Isaiah to say, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. I, I don't want to hear anything when you're in exile saying, oh, we didn't know, we're victims of an interpolitical kind of geopolitical upheaval, or this is like, oh, this is, what, what was me? They want to frame the narrative and say, absolutely, 100%, when you're in exile, I'm telling you, 200 years out, it is your fault. You are here for your sin. That's 1 to 39. And once that message has been drummed into you, then you come over to verse chapter 40. And once you've captured the narrative and said, okay, we all agreed this is our bad, we sinned, we broke the covenant. Then the mystery of 40 to 66 begins because then you've got this servant and then you've got this, this kind of suggestion that maybe Israel, which is in exile for its sins is in some weird way in exile for more than its sins. That somehow Israel is maybe receiving a, a surplus of punishment or or that maybe that God in sending them to exile hasn't forgotten his purpose that still through his servants, still through Israel, light will go to the nation, salvation to the Gentiles. And so here in this kind of uh, sympathetic twist, you're talking to the servant, and I think the, the context is, is the exile, and he's saying that I've laboured in vain, that the, the, the whole the vocation of what Israel is about seems to be brought to nothing, and yet God is with me, and his reward is with me. And then the poem takes on a new turn in verse 5. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to himself and to gather Israel to himself, for I'm honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. So he there's a twist again, the concealed, the, the hidden. And now, talking about the servant, which was called Israel, but now the servant's called Jacob. And then that makes you think that actual Jacob, because talking about wombs and Jacob, and you know, when's the first time you meet Jacob? In a womb. Because you meet Jacob, antenatal. That's his first story. He's there in the womb. Antenatal was before, isn't it? I get confused about that. Anti sounds like against or after. Anyway, before, that's right. Uh, Jacob's in the womb. And by saying womb and Jacob together, you think, is he saying that it's not Israel, every Israelite alive now, but we're somehow going back to the start. And we're thinking about Jacob, whose name becomes Israel, who becomes the the patriarch of of the nation, and the suggestion I think is that we're thinking about not every Israelite, but of a kind of ideal Israelite, about Israel before it went on its kind of disastrous adventure into disobedience. And so you talk about Jacob. I guess the, this is not a great illustration, I think, but it, it's like, I guess, Captain America is in some weird way like idealized America. A particularly kind of maybe problematic like white male, uh, you know, post war American, but still there it is, as like Captain America, it stands for a particular vision of America. And here you've got Israel, Jacob as, as this kind of back to the start, what was our mission? What were we supposed to do? Kind of Israel, the, the servant servant, the proper, the real, the true Israel within Israel. And this Israel, this this servant, this Jacob, is given this mission. And here's the heartbeat of the passage. Notice that he's given two missions. The first mission is to restore Israel. So this is why Israel can't be just every single uh, Israelite alive, because Israel's job, the servant's job, is to restore Israel, to bring Jacob back to the Lord. Uh, Again, to use Paul's language in the New Testament, the, the servant's job is to the Jew first first to the jew and so here verse 6 he says first to the jew restore israel but notice the, the the ambitious language of the lord he says it's too small a thing for you to restore the tribes of israel like tiger woods dad who clearly thought that uh, you know that golf was just the start it's too small a thing for my son to be you know the world's greatest golfer if he ever was i don't really follow this stuff but uh, You know, it's too small a thing for him to be that. My son also needs to be, what was it? Like by his sheer presence, he'll bring about a new humanitarianism or whatever. It's like Tiger Woods' career hasn't worked out like that so far, I don't think. Yeah. Anyway, again, don't follow this stuff. I just seem to remember it didn't go that well in the end. But here you have the, the, the servant, the ambition of God now is speaking and saying, that's That's not big enough for you. That that's not a grand enough, that's not a grand enough canvas on which I want you to paint your greatness and your goodness. He says, Too small a thing, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This guy's got two jobs: restore Israel, bring the nation back to itself, and then through that to be a light to the nations. To bring God's salvation to the end of the earth. Now, pause on that word for a moment. He says, your job is to bring salvation to the end of the earth. But the salvation immediately on view in Isaiah 40 to 66 is is the end of exile. So if you ask the question, what is is salvation in, in concrete terms in Isaiah, it's achieved when the nation has come back into the land. So they are now in captive and then they'll be... Saved from captivity and brought back into their land. But Isaiah uses the language of salvation for Fiji and the Solomon Islands and Australia and England. That somehow the Lord's servant, having restored Israel, then has to take salvation to the ends of the earth. That is, Isaiah, the servant, the Lord, sees that the nations need saving. That somehow the nations are captured. That somehow the nations are also in darkness. And God's purpose is to save them. Obviously not from exile, because Fiji not in exile. Australia's not in exile. But from, from sin and death and Satan. From our disastrous desertion of our worship and obedience to the living God. God is going to save the nations from that. Going to give them light. So finally, Isaiah 49, verse 7, Israel, my chosen. Israel, my servant, my light, and finally my chosen. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. To him who is despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, has chosen you. It's your classic biblical reversal statement. At our church at the moment in Perth at Providence, we're doing uh, the book of uh, the books of Samuel one and two. Samuel begins with the great prayer slash poem slash song of Hannah, which is all about that. It's it's this kind of fist in the air revolutionary fighting song that the day will come when God will reverse everything, when if you're proud you're down, where if you're down you're up, where the whole thing gets reversed. And this is that story because this is saying that the servant who is like hidden quiver, you know, despised and so on, this servant. The day will come when he walks past and the kings flinch and go, oh, it's him. Whoa, 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 whoa. The day will come when princes who are chatting about the affairs of the state and something suddenly this servant walks past and they're on the ground bowing down and they go, oh, sorry, you're the real prince. You're the real king. We're just mucking around. You're for realsy. <laughs> the day will come when the opinion of the servant amongst the rulers of the world will be completely reversed. Uh, you might remember, if you're if you're old enough, uh, in the um, de- depending on your politics, the the intervention or the invasion or whatever of Iraq, uh, when in, was that two thousand and three? And George Bush, and this is not an anti or political statement. George Bush himself says this. I read the biography that that he says he made a mistake, and probably everyone agrees. When he got onto the uh, the aircraft carrier and gave a big speech, and behind him, what did the sign say? Mission accomplished. Yeah, and in the book, he's like. To be, that probably was a tactical error. <laughs> because the, it came a bit early. Called it, called it, called it a little bit too soon. Now, notice, at what point do you say of Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 7, mission accomplished? It's, it's when Israel is restored, it's when the nations have been saved, light's like gone to the Gentiles. And it's when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that the servant trumps every king and prince and power. That's what it looks like to see mission accomplished. Now, I want to bring this two things. I want to land this in two ways as we finish. One is in the way we read our Bibles and then in the way we plant our churches. Have we got this time? We can do this. Yep. Uh, firstly, in the way we read our Bibles, let me uh, run with you on this for a little bit. In the book of Acts, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, I, you knew Jesus was here. I, my, beautiful, my son, Theo, was in church the other day, and someone was talking, and they were saying and this, 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 and he whispered to me, and he said, Dad, I think this is going to be about Jesus. So, Oh, you beautiful boy. That's... Uh, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, after his whole teaching career has happened, after he's been raised to life again, and after, listen, listen, this is the book of Acts, chapter 1, after he's been appearing to them for 40 days, and do you remember what he taught, taught them in those 40 days? taught them about the kingdom of God, and at the end of, what was it, three years, maybe, uh, death and resurrection, and then 40 days of post-resurrection teaching about the kingdom of God, the disciples say... At this time, are you going to restore Israel? Do you think that's a good question? See, I reckon we often read that and think that's in the kind of "oh, you still don't get it" category. That come on, guys, because didn't you know Jesus taught you this, this, and this, and didn't you realize and that the, the dumb questions they ask? Can we sit on your right and on your left when you're in glory? And do you think that maybe they get to Acts chapter one verse eight and they're like? Lord, at this time you're going to restore Israel, and we think oh, dumb question, it's like a spiritual kingdom, and like it... <laughs> what are you doing? But Jesus doesn't treat it like a dumb question. And I don't think it is a dumb question. If you know Isaiah 49, if you know Isaiah 49 and you know that mission accomplished means restored Israel, light to the nations, and every tongue confess and every knee uh, bow at the name of the servant. It's not a dumb question. It's got a job. Restore Israel. Light to the Gentiles. All nations acknowledge him. Now, a little bit of history here. The, 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 I think the most common thing in, in Christian circles is just say, Israel equals church. So what do you do with all those Old Testament promises? Just say, well, the church is like the new Israel. And so, in a sense, God, on, on a technical score did it, um, if you you call the church Israel, the great alternative to that is the system called dispensationalism. And uh, dispensationalism has kind of fallen on rocky ground these years. Perhaps if you grew up in a Sunday school with a lot of charts, you might have grown up in a dispensational (laughs) family. Um, Anyway, lots of charts in this system. I'm not going to go into it. But what I am going to tell you is that whatever else you think about dispensationalism, they're really sensitive to this. That dispensationalists, or they maybe ask if you, hey, if you're here, good to see you. <laughs> Love to see the charts afterwards. Uh, I think dispensationalism pays attention to something that we often don't pay attention to: that the Bible does say that. It does say that the servant's supposed to re- restore Israel. That, and they, they're going to say, don't fudge it, guys, there it is. And so I want to give you an alternative between those two. And to this, I owe homage to the great Donald Robinson, one of the great Bible teachers of this city, who's alive today living in a retirement village on the North Shore. And Donald Robinson helps us, I think, by saying, actually, you don't have to choose between those two. It doesn't have to be... Because the problem with the dispensational thing is that it takes the work of the servant, acknowledges the mission, but reverses the order... So what dispensationalism is, it says the the servants got to restore Israel and bring light to the Gentiles, but they flip the order and say so. What happened is in some strange, unexpected thing, it ended up going to the Gentiles first and then to the Jew. Although the Bible says to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, but there's this flip. And so now all the nations are, are believing and Israel is being left out or whatever. But then at the end, uh, Israel will be included. And so if you're in that system, then you're looking at the state of Israel and thinking any minute now, or like whatever, and you're paying attention uh, to that, which may or may not be a, a worthwhile thing. Or you do the other thing, which I think is kind of fudge it a bit and say church, Israel, let's, let's call them the same, same. Uh, and what Donald Robinson says, and I think this is right, is that actually the servant had to restore Israel before the light went to the Gentiles and did restore Israel before the light went to the Gentiles. It had to happen, and it did happen. Because what happens? They stay in Jerusalem. We think about Jesus. He comes in, he chooses 12 disciples. Not 11, not 13, 12. And he feeds them in the desert. Feeds them bread in the desert. And he does all the Israel stuff. And he gathers together this thing and says, you'll be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then in the new he comes death, resurrection. And then the Spirit is poured out in Jerusalem. And what do you think about the early church in Jerusalem pretty great spirits poured out they share everything in common no one is in need and from jerusalem from the restored tent of david from the restored jacob the servant does it and you and i are the direct beneficiaries of that restored israel because the light went from there to us The light went from there to Fiji and the Solomon Islands and to America and to Australia. It went out from there, and it necessarily went out from there, in particular with the Apostle Paul, who is a Jew who brings the light to the Gentiles. He takes it from restored Israel and gives it to us. So it is, for the servant, mission accomplished. He did it, and we're the beneficiaries. That's where we're on the timetable. We're the ones who are receiving the benefit of the restored Israel, that Jesus achieved the servant of God. And finally, for us as church planters. Uh, Last night, we talked about secularisation, thinking about our secular age. I said five things I think are definitely true, which is that we do live in a secular age, that it's complicated, that it's happening elsewhere but not everywhere, that it's deep and that it's shallow. And last night, I forgot, I think I flipped one too many pages in my iPad, and missed the thing I wanted to say that I'm not sure is true but I think maybe is true my kind of speculative moment, because we're trying to avoid factoids and fake news and stuff. I want to flag this as speculative. But in the research, people say that 1963 in Australia is a key moment, that that's the point where a whole lot of stuff starts to change and go down. So here's my speculative, could be fake news moment. I wonder whether in 20 years at Multiply 37, there'll be someone who's saying that something really changed in Australia in about 2014, 15, 16. That, that, it, that in some way someone just turned stuff up and over and off and just the the way that our culture thinks about, like obviously sexuality, uh, but also the way it thinks about the presence of Christians, the way it thinks about Christians hiring a building or the way it thinks about a CEO in a company who can or cannot sign whatever affirmation they 're supposed to not sign i wouldn 't be surprised if someone says there was there was another one of those kind of sudden quite dramatic changes around now. It could work. and I think there, there is kind of these early indications as people think about the Benedict option if you 've read that stuff, and that people respond to the challenges that we have in planting churches and i 'm very sobered to think, and I, I think this is true. Uh, I'm raising my kids to be Christian. I want them to follow Jesus, each and every one of them, whole life, all in. But I reckon I'm asking them to do something harder than I've had to do. Like, same Lord, same Saviour, same Apostles' Creed, all that stuff. But I reckon as a dad, I'm saying, hey, do the same thing I did, and it's going to make your life harder than it made my life. And I, I wear that and I feel that and I feel that as we plant our churches. I think this is not Syria, let's not panic, let's not pretend kind of a, some sort of crazy complex about how hard it is or whatever. But we are entering, I think, a different phase and we need to acknowledge that and we can think together. We're going to think together about how these things are done and what church planting looks like and what discipleship looks like and what evangelism looks like. But I want to end by saying what ambition looks like. Because if you're ambitious for your own name, if you're ambitious for what we think of you and what we think of what you do, you're going to make the next 20 years a kind of a nightmare. Because either you'll succeed and then you'll be a nightmare to all of us, uh, and we will, no one will want to sit next to you at lunch because uh, it'll just be tedious, uh, <laughs> or you'll be constantly measuring and and indexing your success against some really crappy kind of measures and you'll start to make some decisions about hey I tried to plant here but this isn't working and I've, I'll get to the conference next year and I've got to, and here I can I'm going to think that that the implosion of that church led to the growth of our church and I'm going to call, I'm going to count that as you know evangelistic growth or whatever and there'll be all that sort of stuff happening but ambition for your name will lead you and it will lead me to make decisions that aren't about growing the kingdom. But if you lack ambition, if you kind of don't care, you kind of, whatever, like, I don't really mind who, what, if kings do or don't bow down to the servant, he did this stuff, they doesn't need the acknowledgement or whatever. If you kind of don't care about the glory of King Jesus, if you're not ambitious for him, then the next 20 years are going to be terrible because it's going to be really hard. And people don't do hard stuff unless it matters to them. And so this is where we need to... Tune in to the song that God is singing, which is not about his ambition for you and not about his non-ambition, no, you know, just as long as everyone plays friendly, but to be tuned into God's unrelenting, makes Earl Wood sound like a moderate, unbelievable, over-the-top ambition for the glory and the reward of his servant. And for whatever happens in Australia in the next 20 years, God is utterly determined that the nations bow to Jesus, that at the end he wins, and he doesn't win on points in round 20 because the other guy looked a bit rough. Hands down, absolutely, in the end, Jesus wins. All the nations acknowledge him. He's the saviour. Let's pray. Father God, you are so ambitious for your servant. You are so ambitious that every king would flinch as they see the true king, Uh, that every nation would bow, uh, that the nations would find their salvation in him. So we pray, Father, that we would do our work um, disregarding for our own names and relentlessly ambitious for the name of Jesus. Amen.